Welcome to this episode of Kendall County Connections podcast. I'm your host, Aubrey Walker. I work with the San Antonio Council on Alcohol and Drug Awareness, or CICADA. I'm the coalition coordinator for Kendall County. The purpose of this podcast is to educate, promote awareness of resources for Kendall County and to connect people. I have lived in Kendall County most of my life and I have a passion for this county. I hope you find this podcast helpful and thank you for listening. All right, hello and welcome back to the Kendall County Connections podcast. Um, to all of our listeners, thank you so much for um, allowing the time for the hiatus. We have a, a, a new revamped, um, exciting um, next couple episodes. Today, we will be talking with Jillian Rodriguez. She is a licensed professional counselor. She also owns Trellis Counseling and Co., which is important to say. Um, so hi, Jillian. How are you this morning? Hi, good morning. It's great to be here. I'm doing well. Thanks for asking. Yes. So um, I, Jillian and I met just a couple months ago when like just immediately we were talking and it was like, she needs to be on the podcast. Um, And uh, as we go through the questions, the listeners, you will soon understand, you know, why, why it is that she just I just felt like she needed to be on the podcast. Um, This is a resource that is in Kendall County. And so I really want to put the word out there and share with everybody. So let's go ahead and get started. Um, For the listeners, we have changed things a little bit as far as the questions this season. So um, we, of course, I love the first question. Uh, So we did keep that one. Um, But what has been your most enjoyable job so far so far? I know how to speak. Um, how old were you, Jillian? And if it is your current position, you do not have to tell us your age. <laughs> um, well, first again, just thanks for having me. I feel like this podcast offering to our community is such a wonderful resource. I haven't known of anything quite like this to date. So I just love that you're offering it and that we've become such fast colleagues and friends. So thank you. Um, So my most enjoyable job so far, I have to say, is the one I have exactly right now. Um, This is the first time that I've owned my own private practice and have been able to have the flexibility to not only incorporate self-care in my life as a provider, but translate that flexibility to convenience for my clients, you know. Nobody else makes my hours. Nobody else decides what my policies are. Um, I'm not dictated by insurance companies. I get to make those choices alongside my clients. And so I just, I love what I do every day. Um, And I was 36 when I founded the practice. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, I will, I will share my age. I'm fine. Most people, most people are okay with it, but sometimes you have some people that are like, "Ah, I'd rather not say, okay, teach their own. (laughs) so um for the listeners this was something I just found out um and I thought this was so inspiring and so awesome um but Jillian had just shared with me why she called it trust it didn't dawn on me you know why I just knew it was she was uh, trellis counseling and co so um please share with our listeners what does trellis mean and why did you name your practice that? Yeah. So, um, and I actually get this question a lot. You're not the only one, (laughs) Um, especially if we're talking about before coffee. So you're fine. 
Yeah. I think, um, so when I was creating my practice, I really wanted it to reflect um, sort of an interwoven section of, you know, panels, if you will, of things like community, things like support, things like activism and advocacy. And it was important to me to reflect how those things are woven together to create a support system for my clients and for other people in the community and their families. And so I was actually outside one day doing some gardening, which is self-care thing for me. I'm a total planty. <laughs> and um, it really just occurred to me that that's what a trellis is. A trellis is designed to be a framework that supports life as it's growing and thriving until it's ready to go on its own. Um, trellis is not designed to be permanent. It's not designed to be some fixture in your yard, right? The idea is that it's just there to support that life until it's good to go. And that's really what I think counseling should be about too. Um, it's, it's a temporary framework to be able to support my clients. That's awesome. Uh, so anyway, I just wanted to share that with the listeners because that's just amazing. It's super inspiring. Thanks. So um, thank you for sharing that. Um, what is your work history that is relevant to this topic? Yeah. So, um, just in a nutshell, I, uh, before I became a counselor, I'm a fourth generation mortuary science professional. I'm a licensed funeral director and embalmer here in the state of Texas. And I have a long family history of that practice. Um, and I think that's relevant to this topic, right? Because on in that part of my career, I had seen the way that um, substance use and um, emotional health challenges really affected not just individuals, but their families ultimately after something tragic had happened. Um, I also worked for a brief time as a member of the support staff at Warriors Heart, which is out in Bandera, Texas. Um, and they're currently expanding, I think, to another state as well. So props to them. But they're um, a facility that really specializes, a campus that specializes in working with our first responder and military community um, at the intersection of substance use challenges and post-traumatic stress, post-traumatic stress disorder. So that was really where I started to see substance use challenges live and kind of in action, you know, at work there. Um, I went on to work with the UT Health Science Center and their transitional care clinic, which specializes in working with folks who are coming out of hospital environments before they get linked to long-term care. So again, substance use, there's just so many areas where I feel like substance use challenges and experiences you know, they, it kind of touches everything. It really, I don't know how you can work in mental and emotional wellness and not have some level of experience with that. And most recently, um, I responded to the mass violence event that happened at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde on May 24th, 2022. And a lot of people would think, well, how does that connect to substance use? Um, after someone experiences something like that, whether directly, indirectly, as a community member, as a first responder, as a mental health first responder, you know, everyone is affected by that in a significant way. And I think that's where substance use challenges um, can really sort of 
uh, come into the picture because there's just such a desperate need for relief from that pain. So that's that's my professional background, um, and really the the history of how my career relates to your topic. <laughs> yes, um, and so one thing, just speaking about uh, like how you were just sharing about Uvalde and the first responders, and you know the the parents, just the community in general, whoever you know. I mean, I feel like we've all, in a way, been touched because Uvalde is just on the road from us. You know, so it really and it's a small community, just like Kendall County. And so it in a way, it really it hits home for that. But I I love that you touched on how it's not just it's also the first responders that are there. First responders speaking about mental health professionals as well that are going in afterwards and helping because, I mean, substances are, are used as an escape and and. And it's a great escape, not necessarily that it's a healthy escape, but it does help a person escape for, for a moment. But ultimately, like we know it's not going to last for long. And then, then we've got other problems that. Yeah. And I think that's where you really start looking at the distinction between distraction and avoidance. You know, distraction is temporary. Distraction is actually a therapeutic skill that we teach um, and and can be helpful and useful in redirecting our attention and focus when we, you know, critically need it, like in the wake of such a tragedy. On the other hand, when that leads to a more permanent option of avoidance, right, Mm -hmm. where that's becoming the norm instead of the exception to the norm. I think that's where you start getting into problematic um, experiences and behaviors. And, you know, I I try to include first responders, mental health first responders, healthcare professionals in these kinds of discussions, because I think sometimes there's the misconception that um, individuals in these professions don't experience use, you know, substance use challenges. And that's just factually not true. Yeah. Um, and I just want, it's important to me for anyone listening to know that like experiencing these tragedies and experiencing other things in your workplace, that's never part of someone's job description. Mm-hmm. It's never going to be normalized. And like, gosh, I hope it's never normalized is like just part of the job right and so um it's important to me to kind of communicate that message to to anyone to to let them know that substance use isn't part of something that's a normal everyday coping skill set um no matter what your job is right Yes. Oh, that's awesome. And because I, you know, and first responders, I mean, they're superheroes, like they are, like their jobs, they are superheroes. They do amazing work. But I think sometimes we, and I, I'm, I say we as like society kind of forget that they're human, you know, I mean, yeah. and they are, you know, they have feelings, they have emotions. These tough situations hit them as well. Right. And it, but afterwards, you know, like, I mean, when they're there, they're on, they're doing their job, they're taking care of the people, they're keeping people safe, all the things that they're supposed to be doing, but it's like the after effect, like they step away, they get off the clock, and then you know, then the emotions are still there, but they're they're able to, like, compartmentalize in the, in the time that they're there helping 
I mean, I feel like I'm getting like emotional here it, because I, I I feel so passionate about helping um, first responders with mental health help and destigmatizing, you know, the, yes. the fact that it's okay to ask for help. Yeah. And, and we could even do like a whole, you know, episode, I think on, on that, I think um, part of what happens is like, you're saying your shift ends, you, you go off the clock and you're expected to just sort of turn all of that off and like not bring it home to family and not bring it with you out elsewhere in the community. But like, this is real life y'all. And I don't know about you, but I don't have the ability to just sort of take that hat off and not have it exist anywhere else. I don't know that that level of compartmentalization um, is possible in a healthy way without any other outlets. And so substance use comes up because it's fast, it's accessible, you know, they're able to, to engage in that initial distraction and relief. And then unfortunately, it becomes problematic when distraction turns to avoidance of the problems. Absolutely. Awesome. So we'll go ahead and we'll switch gears a little bit on, um, we talked about this um, somewhat, but what are you seeing in the community as far as substance use? So a lot of the population that I see at my practice um, is currently reflected in the like teen community, the adolescent and emerging adult community or young adult community. Um, And a big part of what I'm seeing is um, non-suicidal self-harm. So non-suicidal self-injury, like cutting, burning, hair pulling, things like that. Um, not for the purposes of suicide or death. And then I also see a lot of young folks struggling with suicidal thoughts. Um, Now, it's important, I want to clarify that there are actually millions of Americans every year, some estimates as high as five to six million Americans every year, who experience some level of suicidal ideation or thoughts. Now, that could look anything like, oh my gosh, I have a big test tomorrow. Like if I just didn't wake up and didn't have to take that test, that would be fine. That's technically in that category. So it happens a lot more than people think. And I think it happens a lot more than people are comfortable outwardly saying. Um, And then there's a whole spectrum of those thoughts that increasingly progress into more active, you know, risk behavior that we would be Um, you know, on an escalating level of concern about. But um, part of what I'm seeing with that is these teens and these young adults turning to existing means within the home once they are going to engage in that behavior. So for example, prescription drugs, I know are a constant topic, I think, in the substance use communities and substance use awareness communities. Um, but I have a surprising number of folks that when I first start working with them, their children, teens, young adults, you know, we're talking about as young as 12, 13 are responsible for taking their own medications, whether it's for ADHD, whether it's for depression, anxiety. Um, but parents feel very comfortable saying, you know, yeah, they have their medication in their bathroom. They take it every morning and, you know, I know they do because I get the refill request. And so, yeah, 
Um, and it's not to dismiss the incredible responsibility that our teens are capable of. Um, a lot of them are. But at the same time, I think to have complete lack of supervision with prescription drugs is maybe a misstep that parents can learn from, you know, all of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not only the the opioids and the, you know, narcotic medication, which, yes, is absolutely dangerous in its own right. But if you have a, a teen that's experiencing suicidal thoughts and they have ready, unsupervised access to a bottle of antidepressants or anti-anxiety medications, um, sleep aids, things like that, you know, that's really where I'm seeing a big area for growth and awareness is just for parents to don't make the mistake that because you have a responsible teenager, that you don't also have a teenager that may have some hurts that, that require a little bit more supervision on your part. So one option I suggest is to just keep medication somewhere in a more public accessible area in the home um, and have them taken there. You know, this is a great opportunity for a locked medication cabinet or drawer or something in the kitchen. That way, you know, they're still taking their medication. You know, no teen wants to feel like their parents are just helicoptering them about something. Um, but it's not just unrestricted access and it's not just completely self-managed and unsupervised. Um, so I, I think that's a big thing that I'm seeing now that there's not as much attention to. There's this sort of, again, misconception that if you have a, a good, good kid or teenager that's responsible, who's very self-sufficient, that they can also be completely unsupervised with um, self-help medications. And I would encourage a rethink on that for anyone listening. Yes, absolutely. You know, so I was doing a Red Ribbon Week presentation last week and talking with teens. And, you know, I asked the question, speaking specifically about prescription medication, um, you know, if, and, and, and with that as also over-the-counter meds, because those can also be dangerous too, right? So I asked the question, you know, do you, do you or your friends um, take your own medication or does do your parents help? And majority of them said that they do it on their own, which again, you know, they trustworthy, you know, all those things they, right. they've earned that, you know, understanding, you know, but it may, and so, I mean, obviously I wouldn't ask this question to the youth or anything like that, but the question for the parents is, you know, is it, is it some, somewhere where they come into the kitchen and, you know, have take their medication in front of their parents, you know, is there a little bit of the supervision there? Not to, not to blame parents or anything like that, but, you know, right. what else can we do to help prevent that? You know, right. one thing, one thing that we also are a part of is the DEA take back day, making sure, you know, sometimes people have surgeries and there's some leftover medications and it's like, okay, well, let's, you know, take that. Let's get rid of that. It's, mm-hmm. it, we don't need it. We don't want it. Let's get rid of it. You know, in the correct yeah. way, not just flushing it or throwing it in, you know, uh, in the trash can or anything like that, but really getting rid of it, deactivating the medication. It's Agreed. so important. Agreed. And I, I think, you know, sometimes we we see this, especially after the lockdowns during COVID, when like, things were harder to access, we didn't know what was happening, let's hold on to everything in case right. we need it later, that kind of, 
um, you know, mentality of, of building a stockpile of things. And, and it, it's just not necessarily needed, even during, you know, tougher times, like I know the economy is pretty tight right now, but there's, there's no amount of money that's worth saving when it's when it's someone else's life that's on the line. And, and I just think that it's true for all medications, you know, if a family member has taken an antidepressant, and they're no longer taking them, get rid of them. Um, we don't have to hold on to those things. And the other thing that I would add is to, um, you know, just participate in those events, participate in take backs and red ribbon weeks to bring awareness that a lot of times it's the prescription drugs that are right there in the home that are that are dangerous i i've talked to a lot of parents that truly and i'm a parent myself so i know like we can't possibly put something else on our own plates um i mean have awareness of what your child's medication looks like the actual pills or capsules um there are definitely teens that have medication bottles that parents are like, okay, I know that's their medicine, but there are other things in there because the, because it's never checked. It's never looked into. Um, or if they do look at it, they just assume that that's what the medication looks like. Mm -hmm. Um, so, I mean, gosh, their kids are smart. Teens are smart. I think everybody's getting smarter about these things. Um, which requires that much more involvement from friends, from family members, um, other kids, right, to have awareness that this is happening. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's a that's a new um, kind of piece as far as uh, preventing with substance use is talking with parents about knowing what their kid, you know, their child's medication looks like. I've, you know, I've never, I've never thought of that. So I appreciate you bringing that up. Um, and I'm sure that the listeners, you know, it's another, I, you know, light bulb. Okay. So this is how else I can help prevent. So I appreciate yeah. you bringing that up. Um, just never thought of that before. Yeah, absolutely. So um, kind of, we've kind of touched on this a little bit, um, but what, what as parents, um, what do we look for? Yeah. So um I would say from a behavior perspective, one of the biggest red flags, if you will, is sleep, sleep disruption. And this is such a tricky one because, you know, sleep disruptions happen to all of us at some point in time, right? They're very much correlated with stress. They're correlated with hormones. They're correlated with all kinds of things. So, when someone's sleep pattern changes in a distinctive or noticeable way, it's not always cause for alarm, but I would say when that change persists for several days, weeks, or longer, when that sleep disruption is impacting activities of daily living, school, work, volunteering, socializing, um, when sleep changes are impacting those things negatively, or even if it just, you notice it enough for, for a period of time, that would be a big eye opener for me. Um, the American Associate, or I'm sorry, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention actually found that sleep disruption is one of the top five um, immediate precipitants, like something that happens immediately before 
someone attempts to take their own life um, more often than not. So it's really something to be aware of. And that's one of those things that you can pretty easily notice it. You can notice if someone is sleeping a lot more than usual or much less than usual. And again, we're looking for a pattern. So it's not just pulling one all nighter to take exams the next day, and then you recover the weekend. It's kind of consistent, chronic sleeplessness, trouble falling asleep or staying asleep. um, Just difficulties like that. Um, I would also say connected with that is to really look out for over scheduling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I know this seems like an odd thing to connect to substance use, but I think in professional communities and teens and young adults who are very high performing, high achieving, right? There, everyone is so over scheduled um, to the point really of the brink of exhaustion and the brink of emotional health exhaustion. Um, you know, if you're talking about, for example, a teenager that's going to school, they're getting there early for an athletic practice that happens before the school day even starts sometimes. And then they have their full school day until four o'clock. They may have a different activity or practice after school. Then they have youth group at church that evening. It's not unusual for people to not be eating dinner or getting home until nine o'clock at night, sometimes later. And then they're back at it at 5 a.m. the next morning. And I think, again, if you're talking about an exception to the rule, that's different than if you're talking about this is four, five, six days a week that this is going on. Um, that level of overscheduling really does connect to the breakdown of emotional health and wellness. And when we see that start to erode, that's when we really see people, again, turning to things like substance use, because it's just there's some level of relief that's appealing to them in that mind state. Wow. Yeah, I, I never thought I never thought about either one of those as being um, kind of something to look for. Um, but I, I love how you explained it all in depth so that we can understand um, kind of what you mean by that. So thank you for that. Yeah. Um, so what what drugs, what substances should we be looking for? Should we be worried about what's out there that's kind of new? Yeah, so I know we already touched on prescription medications that are at home. Um, I would also really encourage folks to be aware of the quote unquote legal (laughs) varieties of cannabis that are emerging and coming out, Delta 8, Delta 9, and others. Um, These are, you know, sold across the entire World Wide Web. And um, they're, unfortunately, they're so easy to access for a lot of people um, discreetly that there's a lot of, you know, a lot of that use being engaged in as well and emerging. Um, I think part of where that becomes, again, problematic, that shift from behavior to problem behavior is when that's used as an avoidance mechanism and as a way to more permanently distract and avoid from whatever the issues are at hand. Um, I talk to folks quite a bit who 
have never looked at their child's internet search history, who have never looked at the YouTube queue to see what videos have been watched. Um, and, and they sort of ask me, you know, I don't know where they're getting this behavior information. They hang out with great kids at school and they're all these wonderful. T- yes, I don't doubt that. And they're finding it somewhere, right? This doesn't just like materialize in the imagination. So um, looking out for drugs, but in particular, looking for them in the internet search history of your friends, of your children, family members. Um, That's just really, you may not always see evidence of substance use in someone's physical domain or home, especially if they're trying to hide it and be secretive of it. Um, you can find an awful lot in someone's search history. Absolutely. Um, it's interesting though, that because with cannabis, it's, it's kind of hard because the, we're, we're also talking about like social norms. So, uh, you know, there are some States that have legalized it. And so the understanding of just because it's legal does not mean that it's safe, does not mean that it's okay. And so there, because of that, there's also a lot more information that you can find on, you know, websites or YouTube pages or things like that of, you know, what they think is true and factual. Um, and a lot of times it's bad information, unfortunately, because it's not a reputable site. Exactly. And that's part of what I talk to my clients about is that there's not a judgment regarding the reason for use or even regarding the use itself. I'm here as a counselor to support people, not to shame them for what's happening in their lives. Um, I think what I try to educate people on is that, you know, regardless of what your outlook is on the use, there are just factual risks with with really ordering anything off of the internet, right? I mean, it could be diet pills, it could be cannabis that's maybe legal or not legal or whatever. Um, It it could be, um, you know, this is going to help me focus for my big, you know, meeting at work or conference. I mean, anytime you're ordering something off of the internet and ingesting it into your body, you're taking a roll of the dice risk with what that is, because those substances are not regulated whatsoever. And it's dangerous. Absolutely. So the next question is, what are you doing to help restore people with substance use disorders lives? Yeah. Um, So part of what I'm doing is I do um, offer uh, free Narcan um, to the clients that I see for counseling. I try to educate my clients as well as their families about Narcan and, you know, how to use it, provide it for free. Um, more often than not, I get sort of a quizzical <laughs> look that's like, why are you giving this to me? Why are you talking to me about this? I don't have a problem with that. Um, and, you know, I, I just let everyone know that I've made it a matter of uniform practice because I would rather you have it and know about it and never need it mm-hmm. than the other way around. Um especially with holidays coming up, you're talking about family gatherings, people coming in from out of town, people coming home from college and other work travels, and just 
you can't assume that you know or don't know if someone is using substances. It's unsafe, in my opinion, to make the assumption that they're not. And so this is something that's free. This is something that is easy to learn how to use and can be literally life-saving. So um, I do provide that to my clients um, thanks to a a program um, that supplies that to me. What I also do is I educate families on their ability to communicate with their pharmacy, whichever pharmacy they use, to request something called blister packing. Um, So many medications, not not all, and I'm not a pharmacist, so I don't want to speak out of my scope of license, but many pharmacies support something called blister packing, which is where, um, and I'm just going to hold up kind of a, a size sample for lack of a better option here. I know this is like a, can you see it in my, okay, so this is like a, basically like a magazine size. I know it's hard to see, Um, but it's a flat cardboard um, cardstock, basically, that's about that size, sometimes smaller, and it has the medication label, the sticker on top, and each pill or tablet or capsule is individually packed into a Mm -hmm. cellophane sort of bubble that can be punched out on the day that it needs to be taken. Um, And that's another one where people kind of look at me like, why are you talking to me about blister packing? Like, what? (laughs) Um, Anything that can slow down someone attempting to hurt themselves or attempting to take their own life with prescription medication, Mm -hmm. if they're confronted with a blister pack, it slows them down significantly, thankfully. And the the hope and the effort is that in that process, there will either be, you know, some level of rational cognition restored, or someone else comes into the room or, you know, something that um, at least makes it harder to access that, Mm -hmm. that lethal option, if you're having to sit there and punch out each individual pill, as opposed to taking the bottle and tossing it back. Um, So blister packing can be a wonderful resource. Typically there's not an additional charge for it. Um, Again, some pharmacies um, participate in it and some some medications are able to be done, but it doesn't hurt to ask. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, parents that are concerned, even folks that are concerned about maybe family members that are in, different states of emotional distress or, or even elderly family members, um, you can just request blister packing of a medication and it doesn't cost you anything to ask for. Oh, that's interesting. I've never heard of that. So that's a, that's a really cool resource to be able to use. Um, so what resources, uh, we kind of talked about this, um, these questions all kind of bleed together, right? Um, (laughs) What resources do you provide to people? Um, So the resources that I provide apart from what we just talked about is uh, really counseling, counseling as support. So, um, you know, counseling, also known as therapy, those two things are the same thing. Um, Excuse me. Thankfully, now they're available both online and in person. 
Um, I do offer counseling that's in person uh, here in Bernie, and I service the entire Hill Country community. Um, I have folks from as far away as you know, Dripping Springs, Fredericksburg, you know, all the way around. So I work with a lot of people in different areas, in person and online. Um, and a big part of that trellis, right, that we opened our time with today is providing support in the form of education, like today, providing support in the form of community involvement, really um, reaching out and making sure my clients are connected within their communities and the way that they want to be. Um, and then also just individual counseling session support where you're not going to find platitudes. I'm not going to tell you that life's all roses and daisies because it's just not right. Especially with um, things like trauma and grief. Um, but I will be with you and I'll, you know, sit alongside you and be with you in what's happening in your life. And I think sometimes whether it's about substance use challenges or other things connected to it, um, really what's most therapeutic they're not any fancy techniques that I have. There's no like mm -hmm. secret toolbox that I pulled from. It's just sharing space and presence with someone and really acknowledging like, yeah, that's, that's rough. Let's just take a minute and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, have that understanding and, and hold that space. Yes, absolutely. Um, so now a fun question. How do okay. you, how do you maintain um, your mental health? What do you do when you need some self-care time? Yeah. Um, so uh, part of what I do is I do see my own therapist. I think it's important for me as a professional to acknowledge that and try to break the stigma on that for all of us as well. I could not do what I do if I didn't have my own professional support. Um, so it's kind of like, you wouldn't be surprised to hear that your dentist also takes care of their teeth with another dentist, right? It's the same thing with therapists. Like I have my own therapist that supports me. Um, a big part of self-care for me is also, um, Lego, <laughs> which may be <laughs> surprising to some people. Um, but gosh, in a world where it feels like it's so hard to, control things and it's so hard to you know hold all of this um real hurt that a lot of people experience and that I um, am, am sort of the keeper of right like I'm sort of that box that they can open and put the hurt in and then close the box again when they leave session I gotta do something with all that stuff I can't just carry it around myself and so um I open a fresh set of lego and I follow these little one-by-one -one instructions, right? And it's just so satisfying. You hear the click of the brick and you get to see what you're building. And, you know, page by page, you're like, yeah, I can do this. And, you know, it um, it's something that really is very self-soothing for me. Um, and I guess in kind of a more free range way than, than Lego, I cook quite a bit. Okay. Um, fun fact, I'm actually going to be starting to take cooking classes here next month awesome. um, as a form again of my self-care and just having a space where I can walk in and say like, I'm not the counselor. 
I'm not the superhero. I'm not the, right. I'm just Jillian and I'm just walking in to put on my apron and like cook up a mean meal for people. Um, So that's what I do to take care of myself. That's awesome. So we, we as the coalition kind of put together some, some of these new questions. And um, it's so funny because I didn't, I don't know. I just, I've never asked that question before. And, you know, you talk to people and you talk about self-care, right. And, and it's like, you know, you can do, and you can do whatever, whatever works for you. And I think so many people, I mean, one of the big ones that people talk about is exercising, journaling. Those are kind of like the defaults, which if that works for you, great. But some people they're like, "Mm, no. And so I love that the ones, the ones that you shared are so creative, so different. I've, you know, I've never heard of that, but you're absolutely correct. It, you know, having that satisfaction, sati- sat- I can't say the word satisfaction. <laughs> there we go. Goodness gracious, y'all. Um, having the satisfaction of, you know, completing the Legos or have, you know, making this meal that you learned how to do for, you know, your friends and loved ones. Um, I can absolutely see where that's a, that's a self-care, like, um, look at me, I'm doing something new, something different. And so I appreciate yeah. the fact that it's the ones that you shared with us are outside the box. They're not the norm. Cause again, so many people it's, oh, exercise and journaling or, you know, listening to, you know, certain music that's calming and that's great yeah. if that works for you, but it doesn't work for everybody. Yeah. And and I agreed, like if that's something that people enjoy and it is replenishing to them, rocket. Yes. Um, I sit in front of a journal and I have a blank stare on my face. I just don't even I don't even know where to begin. And after a few minutes, I'm like, yeah, this is for the birds. It's not gonna work. <laughs> so yeah, I kind of stumbled on Lego because um I have a young son and we started to do a set that he had gotten, I think, for Christmas one year. Um, and like, he sort of lost interest after like 15, 20 minutes. And I was sitting there like still going at it, like, man, this feels great. This is wonderful. Um, and he has sort of discovered this entire community of like Lego people that really get into it. And I think that is an example of an adaptive way to take distraction, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and make sure that it's a healthy distraction and healthier avoidance. (laughs) <laughs> yes healthier avoidance that's awesome um okay so another fun question what um is your favorite part of working and living in Kendall County mm, that's a good one so my favorite part about living in Kendall County has to be the scenery that mm-hmm. we get to exist in every single day Um, going to the Cibolo Center for Conservation, going to, you know, out toward Guadalupe State Park, that might be Comal County, right there on the line. Um, And I mean, we just have so much beautiful property and scenery and and access to things as a public, you know, trails, walking trails, um, and spaces that it's just, to me, it's life-giving because it doesn't matter what's happening in your world. When you go and make yourself part of the nature that you live in, it very much zooms out of whatever is going on for you. And it creates a completely different perspective that like you're one part of this whole world. Um, 
what do I like most about working in Kendall County? Um, I think what I like most about working in Kendall County is just the ability to um, walk into Bakery Lorraine here in Bernie <laughs> and see different people that I work with and collaborate with as professionals, whether they're counselors, whether they're ministers, whether they're um, a member of the school district support team, whether it's, it seems like somehow, some way, always I run into someone and, and we all just give each other hugs and we all just want to know how we can support each other. Um, you know, there isn't as much of that sense of, of proprietary, um, you know, what territorialness or whatever the proper word is for that as much as there is, you know, hey, how are you? How is your practice? How is your business? Yes. People really want to know. And and I don't think that's something you necessarily get everywhere in that, like, you know, walking into a restaurant and just seeing people that you love working with. Yeah, absolutely. So lastly, uh, if somebody listening to this podcast would like, uh, wants to uh, connect with you, how can, what is the best way to get a hold of you? Um, the easiest way is probably to go on my website, which is um, www.trellisconsulingco.com. Uh, the CO is important because there are other trellis counseling practices outside of Texas. I am obviously in Texas, so if you get somewhere in Washington State or Utah, like I'm just in Texas, so <laughs> trelliscounselingco.com, uh, you can fill out a quick contact form and shoot me a message. I do not sell your information. Your information is just as confidential um, as if we were talking in session, so Folks can reach out that way. Um, my business phone number is also on the website, which is 830-429-4778. Um, I'm often in session. So if you call, please leave a message or I don't know who you are and will not call you back. <laughs> I think it's just one of those scams <laughs> like usual. Um Awesome. Thank you so much for uh, talking with me today, Jillian. I, I look forward to our future collaborations um, and all the good work that we're going to be able to share later um, that we'll be doing in Kendall County. Um, we will put the information of how to connect with you in the show notes so that people can see it as well. So thank you so much for coming and meeting with me today. Thanks for having me. It's been a total pleasure. And um. I just, it's, it's, I've loved connecting with you. Like since we first started working together, it's like you said, there's just that when you see another um, spirit that's in the same um, mission that you are, I think you recognize it pretty quickly. Um, so thanks for having me and I hope this information is helpful to someone. Absolutely. Thank you for tuning in to this month's episode of Kendall County Connections podcast. If you are interested in joining the coalition or being on an episode of the podcast, you can call 210-225-4741. That's 210-225-4741. Or email coalition at cicada.org. That's C-O-A-L-I-T-I-O-N at 
sacada.org. Or check us out on Facebook, search for Kendall County Community Coalition or facebook.com slash Kendall County Community Coalition. Thank you. We'll see you next time and stay safe.